Last week, we kicked off our series in Revelation, and uh, a lot of what we did is we talked about the context of the book and some background information for how to interpret the book. And I cannot stress enough, if you were not here last week, you haven't heard the message, please go back and listen to that uh, message because we're going to be building off of the foundation that we laid last week. You can find it on our podcast channel. Um, we, we talked through some interpretive keys for the book, and then we went through the first eight verses together. But because that background information is so important, what I want us to do is actually, uh, for the very first question at our tables, is I want you to just take a moment and review what we talked about last week. And if you weren't here, just listen in to what others are saying, and then I'll kind of recap for us. But take some time at your tables just to review what we talked about last week. What are some of the main points? What are the genres of revelation? Things like that. Talk to your tables. We'll get some answers, and I'll recap for us as we prepare to dive in. If we were to just really quickly recap, because this will be really important, even just for tonight's lesson, let alone future messages, um, we started by talking about the two questions you always need to, to uh, ask yourself as we dive into Scripture, and they're from the class encounter. Many of you have taken that. And the two questions are, what does this mean for God's people back then? What does this mean for God's people back then? And then, what does this mean for God's people today? What does this mean for God's people today? And it's important for us to remember that when we are approaching Revelation, or really any text of Scripture, we are not the original audience. Scripture has an original historic audience it was written to, but because it's the Word of God, it's not just written to them, it's meant to apply to us as well. But we need to understand what it meant to the original audience so that then we can figure out what it might mean for us today. And so we have to have that question in mind. Otherwise, we'll, we'll say some crazy things from the book of Revelation that would have made no sense to the original audience. So we have to ask those two questions. And then like we brought up a second ago, Revelation is made up of three genres. It is apocalyptic, meaning it, it's going to, to talk in images that are meant to convey a message through symbolism. So they're not meant to be taken literally, but you, you look at these images from the text and you figure out their meaning, and then that's actually how you understand the book. And then Revelation is also prophecy, but we talked about how contrary to popular belief, prophecy is not just about primarily telling the future. The, that may be part of it, but more significantly, prophecy tells us the future so that it changes what we're doing right now. That's the important thing. And then finally, Revelation is a letter. It is God's letter of love to his people to help them hope in Jesus and endure the persecution trials they will face in the last days. And then we close the message last week by looking at five observations from Revelation 1, 1 to 8, and they apply to tonight's message and all the messages going forward. <clears throat> Number one, Revelation is meant to show us what will soon take place. Number two, Revelation is a blessing for those who read, hear, and obey it. Number three, Revelation is full of the Old Testament. Number four, Revelation is all about God. And number five, Revelation is all about the love of God. And we need to remember all of those things, have them in the back of our minds because they will be relevant for our passage tonight. So tonight, we are going to finish up chapter one. We're going to look at verses nine through 20. So if you have your Bibles, turn and tap with me there, or in your uh, scripture notebooks, it's probably the first page, or if there's a title page, the second page. And we're going to read the whole passage together. And just like we did last week, out of a spirit of reverence, I'm actually going to ask you to stand out of reverence for God's word. We're standing together. And in Revelation 1, 9 to 20 says this. 
I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes were a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And then he laid his right hand on me, and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last the living one. I was dead, but now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. There are a lot of strange pictures and images in that passage. And so actually one of the best things we can do in order to get kind of an understanding of what's going on is look at the context. And John actually gives us the context for this passage right away. If you look at the beginning of our passage, the Apostle John is writing a message that Jesus has given to him. And John is living in exile on the island of Patmos. Just a little bit of context here. Patmos is a small island in the Aegean Sea off the coast of western Turkey. And uh, from Patmos, John is writing to the seven churches. These churches are listed in geographical order. um, And it's the order that someone would actually travel if they were to deliver uh, the book of Revelation to the churches. So if you were to look at this map, Patmos is down here. And then you have the churches listed in order here. And this is the exact route someone would take if John had given it to a messenger and they took it to Ephesus and then Smyrna and Pergamum and so on. And so uh, the beauty of this is that suddenly we know who the original audience is. It's these seven churches. And this is meant to be a letter to these seven churches. Now, we don't exactly know why these particular churches were chosen. They could have been the leading churches in the area, the biggest, the most effective. We, we don't know. But what's significant is the number of churches, the number of churches, because there's seven churches. And in the Bible, the number seven represents completeness, hearkening back to the seventh day of creation where God had completed creation and he rested. By listing seven churches, John means for these churches to represent the complete church of Jesus, namely all the churches that have existed throughout all the ages. So Revelation was originally written to these seven churches, but because of the number, because of the intent here, this is meant to apply to all the churches throughout all the ages, including us. Now, 
You'll remember a second ago that we said that John was living on Patmos in exile. You might be asking, why would John be exiled? And sure enough, just like some of the other contexts, he tells us right away. He tells us in verse 9, he was persecuted because he'd been preaching the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, why would Rome persecute John for doing this? Well, the answer probably lies in the fact that Rome was involved in something called the cult of emperor worship. The cult of emperor worship. So you see, in John's day, Roman emperors were actually exalted to the status of deities or gods after they died. And there were some that even got so bold they would actually demand to be recognized as gods even before they died. So, for example, Emperor Domitian, who was probably the emperor when Revelation was written, demanded to be known as the god of all humankind. And in John's day, the cult of emperor worship meant that all people were pressured to offer some form of worship or honor to the emperor. Now, this worship could look like offering up money and prayers, or it could be offering up a sacrifice to these emperor gods. But the point was that the Romans wanted people to recognize the deity of their emperors. They wanted to recognize the the honor of their emperors. But if you know anything about the history of Rome and some of this context, you'll know that the Romans were shrewd political thinkers. The empire was vast. There's no cell phones or internet or anything else like this. And so as they're coming in and raiding lands and capturing new peoples, they wanted to make sure they could keep peace in the land. And so what they would do was kind of a form of a god swap. They would come into a new place and they they would say, you know what, out of respect to you, we're going to let you worship your gods and and we're actually going to add your gods to our pantheon of gods. Now this may sound loving and gracious and maybe there's a little bit of that in there, but really it's just a shrewd move because the Romans are thinking, well, we already believe in hundreds and hundreds of gods and we want to make sure we're getting all the blessings we can. So let's go ahead and add these gods in too and we'll pray to them just to make sure we're covered and we've got all of our bases checked. Uh, this wasn't Rome, but if you'll remember Paul in Acts 17, talking to the men of Athens, and, and he's like, you guys are, are so obsessed with all these gods and all this worship that you even have an altar to an unknown god. It's kind of a similar thing here. So the Romans would take on these, these new gods from the people, but then the Romans would ask the, the, the people of this new place they've conquered to also offer worship up to their gods, and namely their emperors whether through prayers and sacrifices. They wanted some form of recognition and worship to the Roman gods and emperors. And this pressure, at least at this time, looked less like executions and more like social pressure, cultural pressure. So this persecution wasn't just like the Romans would come in and the first moment someone didn't worship a Roman emperor, they were executed, sometimes. But at this point, uh, it was more like peer pressure and social pressure. The Romans said that people could continue to practice their own religions. They said, you can do whatever else you want with your life, but you need to recognize that Caesar is Lord. You need to recognize the deity of our gods. So this is why the Apostle Paul's message is so controversial in the New Testament, because he says, not Caesar is Lord. He says, Jesus is Lord. That is a political statement. That is a political statement. I would argue Jesus is Lord is the most political statement you could ever say. The gospel is already political. We don't have to make it more political. There's your, there's your spoiler for the class on Sunday. We don't have to make the gospel more political because Jesus is Lord is the most political statement you could make. And so similarly, John preached that Jesus is Lord and was therefore punished and persecuted by being exiled. 
In actuality, this exile is probably a gesture of grace because Rome, again, trying to be shrewd, trying to keep the peace, knows that John is well-respected. He's one of the original apostles, and everybody knows his name in the area. And so rather than executing him and causing an uprising, they exile him. They know he's an old man. He's probably going to die very soon. So they just exile him. So it shuts him up. Um, But this is a form of persecution nonetheless. Rome wanted people to recognize their gods and their emperors as divine. And just simple prayers to another god on behalf of the Roman emperors was not enough. These emperors wanted worship directly and explicitly pointed towards them. So, for example, Emperor Caligula was upset when he realized that the Jews were sacrificing on his behalf to their god instead of sacrificing directly to Caligula. Does that make sense? So it's not even just that, you know, we could just pray to our God and say, hey, w- would you be with the emperors of Rome? They would say, no, you need to pray to me directly. That's the difference. So Christians were pressured by the surrounding culture to offer up reverence to the figures exalted by their culture. Christians could do whatever else they wanted with the rest of their lives, but they had to revere what their culture revered. And this pressure to conform reflects the definition that Andy Lee gave us last fall as we talked about the book of 1 Peter. It is this coercion to conform. Persecution doesn't always look like execution. Sometimes it looks like really intense social pressure to celebrate what your culture celebrates, even if it's against what you believe. That's a form of persecution. And that's what it was like for these Roman Christians. Now, maybe some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, you know what? I understand what you're saying, Caleb, but, okay, let's be honest. None of us would ever worship a political figure today. We would never do that. I see some smiles already. That, I would just argue, is a very naive thing to say. Um, And if you want proof, I would just say we could pull out dozens of pastors who have pastored in the last seven years, and I guarantee they would tell you, many of them, that they had to walk on eggshells around certain political figures because if they said something that even had the slightest bit of ill reverence, suddenly they were about to hear about it because they were expected to revere this figure. They could do whatever else they wanted. They could preach on whatever else they wanted. But the moment certain things came up, if they didn't say exactly what this majority of people wanted, suddenly that pastor was getting in trouble. And I can, I can just tell you, I've had personal experience with this. We even saw this in a recent presidential debate. Uh, There was an example. So here you have several presidential candidates. They're all vying for a spot uh, to be the next president. And the vast majority of them would not dare speak a single ill word against a particular politician. They were expected to revere him. Even if that ill word wasn't really an ill word, it was just stating, stating basic facts about that person's immoral behavior. But if you watched on the stage, like, nobody would say anything. It was really awkward, actually. And here, he's their main political rival because they were expected to celebrate this. They could say whatever else they wanted about any other policy, but they could not touch that. They had to speak in reverence. Now, if we were to get off just of of, of figures that might relate to the church, we could just look at our own secular culture, and we see things like this there. We see a pressure to conform and offer reverence in our secular culture. Our culture pressures us to revere what it reveres. So, for example, our culture pressures us to revere the unhindered human autonomy and identity and sexuality. And therefore, we are pressured to celebrate these things 
even if they are explicitly contrary to the teachings of Scripture, basic logic, and basic science. We are told, you know what, you can do whatever else you want to do, you're free, we believe in freedom, we believe in toleration, but don't you dare do anything that doesn't look like celebration on these issues. We are expected to celebrate what our culture celebrates. If we don't conform, we're called bigots, or we're exiled, or metaphorically executed through something like cancellation. And all of this is wrapped up in political speech because politics have become a new religion in our culture. The point is that we, say, we face the very same kinds of persecution that some of these early Christians did. We, we're not afraid of being executed at this moment, but we feel a social pressure. Some of you, depending on the college you're going to or the workplace you're in or the family situation you're in or the friend groups you're in, you may feel this pressure. And so your temptation is, and I understand, and sometimes it's wise, just keep your mouth shut. That's a form of persecution. There is an intense kind of social pressure. We can relate to these early Christians of Revelation far more than we think. Despite the technology and air conditioning and things like that, we feel that same pressure to conform. And so the question is, will we conform to this modern form of emperor worship, or will we be faithful like John and preach the truth of Jesus in the world? John endured the persecution and affliction of his day for the sake of God's kingdom and is therefore a faithful gospel witness. Can the same thing be said about us? Can the same thing be said about us? Or will we just conform to the pressure of our culture and revere what it reveres? If we do that, we may escape temporary pain and social awkwardness, but we will lose our gospel witness and show that our faith has been tainted and compromised. And you will notice as we get into the letters of the seven churches, there are a number of churches that have fallen into this, where they are compromising with the culture. May we be faithful like John, no matter what affliction befalls us. So the question then is, how can we actually remain faithful in the face of persecution and pain? How can we hold fast to the testimony of Jesus when the world is pressuring and persecuting us to do otherwise? What was it that gave John to stare in the face of persecution and endure and preach the gospel anyways? And this leads us to our primary focus for this evening. But before we do that, I want to get us in the right headspace to, to think about this. And so here's a question I want you to talk about at your tables. What is the most scared you have ever been in your life? What is the most scared you've ever been in your life? And obviously, if it's a traumatic story, you, you, you don't need to share that. I'm not asking you to share something that would be uncomfortable in that sense. But uh, what, think about it. What, what is the most scared you've ever been? I was joking with Jay earlier. It may, for Mizzou fans, it may be walking into Allen Fieldhouse in a basketball game. That's a pretty scary place to go, especially because Mizzou will get pummeled every time. Uh, but think about it for you. What is the scare, most scared you've ever been, most fearful you have ever been in your life? Talk about that at your tables for a few minutes, and then I'm going to share my story. All right, for the sake of time, we're going to keep rolling. But here's why I bring up uh, that question, is I want you to think about that feeling of fear. I want you to, if you can remember the best of your ability, what did that feel like in your gut? What, what emotions did that bring across for you? I want you to remember that feeling because it's going to be relevant here in just a moment. For me, the most terrified I've ever been in my life was a moment about 13 years ago I'll never forget the, the I, mean, I can almost remember down to the minute where I was at, but it was Lakeview Lodge at Windermere in the basement underneath Conference Room A. 
I'm sitting in a circle, about 15 to 20 guys after a camp sermon, which was our summer camp that year. <clears throat> and as we're talking, one of the, the guys begins to open up about sin that he'd been struggling with. And it's just an incredibly vulnerable moment. It was, it was beautiful. And it was just like this domino effect. Suddenly, all these guys, almost in order, start going along and sharing the sin that they were wrestling with. And this is not just kind of some superficial thing. This was like deep and heavy stuff, some of which had never been shared before. And it was beautiful watching sin be brought to light and these brothers come together. And as we got around the circle, it became obvious that there was one guy out of the 15 or 20 that hadn't shared. And, you know, nobody was telling him like, hey, bro, you got to share. But it was kind of, it was really obvious to everyone. He was the only one. And there was kind of this awkward silence. Everybody's kind of staring at him. And, you know, our pastor's trying to figure out, like, do we move on? Or, you know, we don't want to be awkward here. But you could see in his face, like, there was like this tension of like, oh, do I share this or not? Do I share this or not? And without going into all the detail about what followed, it was a really, really personal experience. He's, and he's sitting right next to me this whole time. Becomes obvious to us there is more than just kind of this internal tug of war going on with, uh, you know, good side and bad side, but actually that there was a demonic presence in the room. And for some of you that may think that is just a crazy thing to say, I can promise you, demons are real, angels are real, Satan is just really shrewd, he doesn't show off some of this stuff in our modern world because we wouldn't believe it in the first place. If you go to other countries, because of my mission trips to Haiti or Thailand or Sierra Leone, there's a very different view. But in this moment, it became very obvious to us that there was a demonic presence in the room, some form of demonic oppression. And I will just be honest with you, I had never, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was like you could cut the air. It was so thick. And there was this sense of like, there's an evil next to us like we have never experienced before. And as this is kind of coming out, becoming obvious, you know, of course, my jaw's on the floor. I'm like shaking because I mean, the guy's right next to me. And I look over at, at, uh, at my youth pastor and his jaw's on the floor. And when his jaw's on the floor, it's like, whoa, stuff just hit the fan. What is going on? And I, I was absolutely terrified. But without going into a lot of detail, what proceeded to happen is that I became even more fearful, but in the most worshipful sense imaginable. And that may be hard to understand. But what happened next was that through the name of Jesus and the power of prayer and the word of God, this demonic presence was delivered and defeated. And we watched this guy's life, I mean, literally change before our eyes. It was like a new look in his eyes. It was, I mean, he, it was a smile on his face for the first time in a year and a half since a grandpa died. I mean, it was just, he was a different person. He was back to himself. And I remember in that moment, where the greater fear happened was, okay, if this incredible evil that I've never experienced before uh, was, was terrifying me, but then there's an even greater force, namely the name and power of Jesus that could defeat him. This is a different side of Jesus than I've ever thought about. And in watching this victory of Jesus over evil and seeing Jesus' hatred for sin, it made me look on my own sin and realize that I have been so casual with my own sin I, you know, you grow up in a church culture, and sometimes you take the grace of Jesus for granted. And so I, I had not seen the depths of my sin until that moment. And so there was like this worshipful fear, realizing that Jesus hates sin. He judges sin. He is the great judge of all. 
and I deserve to be judged by him. And yet, he can defeat all evil. He can make demons flee. And the rest of the week at camp, I probably had some of the most profound spiritual experiences I had ever had in my entire life. And it's because I saw Jesus in a new light. I saw the depths of my sin and his victory over sin. And, and the incredible nature of his grace and his holiness. And so here would be my question for you. Do you actually fear Jesus? Do you actually fear Jesus? For most of you, that may sound like a really foreign concept. But it's not in Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we are told. But most of us only have a concept of Jesus of kind of this cute, cuddly teddy bear, almost like a therapist. We, we go to him with our feelings and, and our hurts, and we should do that, to be clear. But we have no image of Jesus as a mighty warrior and conqueror that defeats sin and Satan and all the depths of hell. We don't have a view of this infinite transcendence of Jesus. And we assume in our culture that casualness is the height of intimacy. And yet we have no concept for absolute reverence and respect that we owe Jesus. And because we have so domesticated Jesus deep down, we don't feel the weight of our sin. And we don't really believe we are worthy of infinite punishment for our sin. We make the cross seem little and weak. And to be clear, I am all for intimacy with Jesus. But we can't possibly appreciate the intimacy we have with Jesus until we understand the infinite nature of his transcendence. Otherwise, he's just like another friend that we go to when we've had a bad day. But when you understand that he is God, that changes everything. If alongside your intimate view of Jesus, your understanding of Jesus doesn't include infinite transcendence, where Jesus, again, is this divine warrior crushing his enemies and bringing vicious justice for sin, then you actually don't have a biblical view of Jesus. You have to have a view of Jesus that includes both. Both. We must learn to fear Jesus in addition to loving him. And in fact, our fear of Jesus will ultimately lead us to love him more. And most of our passage tonight is about John's view of Jesus that causes him to fall down as, as if he's dead in the presence of his Lord. So does your view of Jesus have a category for the fear that John has when he sees Jesus? Look with me at verses 12 to 17. 12 to 17. We're going to look at what John sees. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the, the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe with golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. In this passage, John looks back and he sees Jesus in much of his glory. John describes what he sees in Jesus through a great deal of Old Testament imagery and illusions. 
And the summation of what John sees puts him in a worshipful fear to the point that he drops down as if he's dead. And so in order for us to understand the fearful and glorious sight of Jesus that John saw, we have to actually understand the Old Testament imagery he evokes to describe Jesus. As we look at this Old Testament imagery, it's vital we remember this is John's description of symbolism. This is not a literal thing. In the words of Sinclair Ferguson, this is not a description of what Jesus literally looks like. It is, is it, it is a description of what Jesus is like in his very person, not his just physical aesthetics. And by using this Old Testament imagery, John can actually say far more about Jesus than he could if he just tried to describe Jesus with basic factual things. What John sees in Jesus is beyond what human language can fully express. And so he does his best and he does the most logical thing that any of us could do. He uses the words that God has given us in the scriptures. And so I just want us to walk through some of what John says because we will begin to see this huge view of Jesus. In verse 13, among the seven lampstands representing the seven churches, and really all the churches throughout the ages, we see Jesus. But the name used by John is not Jesus, but rather one like a son of man. This is an allusion to Daniel 7.13. And in that passage, Daniel is describing a vision that God has given him. And he says this. This is Daniel 7.13-14. I continued watching in the night visions. And suddenly, one like a son of man was coming up with clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people and nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This Son of Man is approaching the Ancient of Days, who represents God. And the Son of Man is shown to be divine, just like the Ancient of Days, by the various things that are said of him, such as receiving glory and dominion and a kingdom that will never end. So what John is saying is that Jesus is the true Son of Man. John is saying that Jesus is not merely a powerful human or a good moral teacher. He's saying that Jesus is God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal with the Father. And this Jesus rules and reigns over all things. He has a kingdom and a dominion that will never end. And all people who have ever existed shall serve him, and he is worthy of all worship for all time. That's what John is getting across with this. John could have just stopped there, and we would have understood why he was in awe of what he saw, but he keeps on going. He's just getting started. Next, in verse 13, John says that Jesus is dressed in a robe with a golden sash around his chest. And this is a twofold Old Testament allusion. This is first a reference to Exodus 28, where God lays out what, what the priest would wear. He, he tells us what garments they should wear. And so this is saying, uh, in John's words, that Jesus is serving in a priestly function. Hebrews 4 reminds us that Jesus is our great high priest who intercedes for us. Jesus is the perfect mediator and priest between God and man because he is both God and man. Jesus is both the priest who offers up a sacrifice for our sin, and Jesus himself was the sacrifice offered up for our sin. He is the perfect high priest because he never sinned, so he could offer up uh, himself, and he could be perfect. 
He could be the one-time sacrifice that atoned for our sins once and for all. For hundreds of years, God's imperfect human priests offered up imperfect sacrifices that imperfectly atoned for sin. But as the perfect priest, who was perfect himself with no sin, Jesus offered up the perfect sacrifice in the perfect way. Jesus' atonement for us at the cross was so great that it could atone for all sins of all people for all time. There is no one like our high priest, Jesus. And John is drawing us, uh, our eyes up to him here. Now, the other reference John is making is to Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel has a vision of God and is shown that the persecutors of God's people will be judged. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read these couple verses here because they will lead us to the rest of the allusions Daniel's about to make, or John's about to make. So this is Daniel 10, verses 4 to 6. It says this, On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from a pass around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sounds of his words like the sound of a multitude. John's description of Jesus is alluding directly to several things from Daniel 10. And maybe you caught that as we were going along. First, he he talks about uh, Jesus having fiery eyes, which represents Jesus' role as the judge, as he brings the judgment of God to the persecutors and enemies of God's people. And then John mentions this bronze feet, the bronze feet of Jesus. And this represents Jesus' moral purity and integrity. He is truly the just judge of the earth. His judgments are true and right. Nothing is hidden from him, and he will bring justice for all sin from all time at the cross or by pouring out God's infinite wrath for sin in hell. Jesus is the perfect judge. We also see John saying that Jesus' voice is like the sound of cascading waters. And this is both a reference to Daniel 10 and Ezekiel 1. And it just... From an imagery perspective, if you've ever been next to like a big waterfall, like Niagara Falls or something like that, you will know how deafening the noise is. And, and there's so much power, you, it almost shakes your body when you get up close to it. I mean, it's just incredible the amount of power that is coming over at every second over the waterfall. And that sound is a picture of what Jesus' voice would sound like. We also see John saying that Jesus' face shines like the sun in full strength. Now, we know that we can't stare directly at the sun for more than a second or two without being blinded, without having to cover our eyes. Jesus' glory is so great and incomprehensible that John can't even look at him because Jesus' glory shines forth as bright as the sun. Commenting on all of this, a theologian named D.A. Carson tells this story of this Jewish man. He's talking to the Roman emperor Trajan. And one day, this Jewish man was being taunted by Trajan, who said, show us your God. Now, what Trajan's getting at is that the Jews did not make idols of God. They didn't make these carved images of God. So he's saying, well, if we can't see your God, how do we know it's real? Because here in Rome, we've got these huge statues. You you can see our gods. So the Jew kind of nods his head for a second, and he says, you want to see my God? And Trajan says, absolutely. He goes, well, uh, let me show you one of his lesser emissaries, 
one of his smaller representatives before I show you him. Trajan says, okay. And so the Jew says, stare at the sun. The point being that God is so great, we could not look at him if we wanted to. Because his glory shines forth so brightly in his divine nature, we could not possibly handle it. That's what John is trying to describe about Jesus here. Now, outside of references to Daniel 10, John just makes a few more allusions. He also describes Jesus' hair being white as wool, hearkening back to Daniel 7 and representing Jesus' sinless purity and perfection. John also describes this sharp two-edged sword coming from Jesus' mouth. And this is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 49. And this represents Jesus' judgment against both the enemies of God's people and those in the church who compromise with the world. Hebrews 4.12 furthers this idea of the, the, the sharp two-edged sword. And it says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, this is not just simply a reference to Scripture, because, see, Scripture is a revelation of God to his people. And John chapter 1 in the introduction tells us that Jesus is the Word of God because he is God's fullest and truest revelation of himself to his people. Jesus and God's Word will judge all those who stand against God, and nothing, not even flesh and soul, can hide the truth from Jesus. Jesus' judgments are so just and pure that even one day the damned will agree with their punishment. Think about that. Jesus' judgments are so just and pure that one day, on the great judgment day, even the damned will agree with their punishment. That's probably pretty hard to believe. When we step back and put all of these allusions together and this incredible imagery and symbolism together we quickly understand why John was in awe. John had caught the gaze of the infinite glory and holiness of God, who is the great judge over all the earth and who sees all things in his omniscient perfection. And just as people did in the vision of Daniel 10, and just as John did here, the temptation would be to fall down as if dead. In seeing the infinite brightness of God's holiness, John saw the infinite darkness and muck of his sin. And John knew that he deserved all of the infinite justice of hell. Friends, you and I, in our own power, are in the exact same predicament. We do not deserve any bit of grace. Because if we did deserve it, it wouldn't be grace. In your own power, you deserve every bit of the infinite punishment of hell. We don't talk about that enough. And the point is not to be just some fear-mongering thing. It's just to be the honest truth. Because we will not understand the depths of Jesus' grace until we understand the depths of our sin. And John, just like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, falls down because he realizes he is a man of unclean lips with a people of unclean lips that deserves nothing but punishment and damnation. Because here's the deal. No matter how small the sin is, no matter how small the white lie or whatever it is, or, or the quick and fleeting thought, every single sin is spitting in the face of God. Every single sin says to God, Lord, you aren't good enough. I'm trusting someone or something else to satisfy, protect, and comfort me more than you. I know better than you, God. God, I deserve to sit on your throne, not you. 
That's what every sin says. It doesn't matter how small it is. Remember, it was one single sin that separated Adam and Eve from God. That's how holy God is. You and I deserve all of the justice of hell and more. And therefore, just like John, we would not be able to gaze upon Jesus. Instead, we would fall down as if dead in worshipful fear. Now, if that were the last word of this passage, it would be theologically correct. It would make perfect sense. But that's not the last thing that's said. Close with this. Look with me at verse 17. Remember, John has gotten this glimpse of Jesus and he immediately falls down as dead. And then notice what happens. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And then Jesus laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the death of keys, of the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what it is and what will take place. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars of the angels are the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John has every single reason to fear because he stands before the one who has every right to judge him. But Jesus tells John not to be afraid. Yes, Jesus is our judge, but he's also our savior who has defeated sin and Satan and death and all the powers of hell. The one who has the ultimate claim to judge us is also the one who laid down his life to save us. Jesus, in his perfect priestly perfection, has fully atoned for all of our sin. His blood speaks a better word than Satan can. Jesus' blood is more powerful than the accusations of Satan. And this same Jesus, whose infinite holiness and glory should induce us to extreme fear, draws near to us. And with his right hand of power, says, do not be afraid, I am with you. You notice how Jesus comes up out of the the, the seven lampstands? That's Jesus saying, I am with the churches. I'm here to protect you. I love you. Do not be afraid because nothing is greater than me, which means nothing can conquer you. Jesus, our great judge, knows every single sin we will ever commit. And he knew it before we ever committed it. And he knew it before he went to the cross. And he still chose to give up his life for us. And he defeated sin forever. There is nothing Satan can do to bring back your sin if you are a Christian. There's nothing Satan can do to overturn what Jesus has done for you. And not even death can defeat us at this point because Jesus is the risen Lord who has defeated death itself. And so all of this means, guys, what this means is we can endure anything because sin can't defeat us. Persecution can't defeat us. Not even death can defeat us because we have this infinite Jesus on our side who fights our battles before us. We sing songs about that, but do you understand how bloody that actually is? Jesus, the infinite one of all, the holy one, defeats anything that comes our way if we would trust in him. We have nothing to fear, which means that we can hold fast to Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to to destroy both soul and body in hell. And with Jesus, we don't even have to fear hell because Jesus has defeated hell's claim on us at the cross. 
Hell cannot defeat us. Satan cannot defeat us. Sin cannot defeat us. Persecution cannot defeat us. Nothing can defeat us with Jesus. We don't have to be afraid because, look, Jesus is the first and the last, the living one who was dead. But now, look, he is alive forever and ever, and he holds the keys of death and Hades. May we fear not and trust him no matter what comes. Let's pray. God, I I pray for my friends here tonight. God, that they would be able to trust you. They would fear you because of how great you are, but God, they would love you. They would know that you have drawn near to them and you tell us, do not be afraid. God, you are with us. You are with the churches. You fight on our behalf and we know that nothing is greater than Jesus. Nothing is greater than him. It doesn't matter what peer pressure we face, what social pressure we face, what persecution we face, whatever is before us, it is not greater than Jesus. And so God, would you help us trust you no matter what comes, that we would know that not even death can defeat us because with you we can live forever in peace with God. And so God, as we close tonight singing your praises, would you help us hail you as the one who we should have all fear for and we will have all love for, that you are intimate and transcendent and that you are with us fighting our battles. Help us live with courage. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.